0: Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the
1: medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. The medical device industry is built on continuous improvement. And that's not just for devices, it means for the people building those devices. Greenlight Guru Academy is the ultimate resource to learn and grow for medical device professionals. From quick practical lessons to comprehensive certifications, you'll learn everything you need to know to keep up with the medical device industry. Visit www.greenlight.guru forward slash academy today to start learning the skills for tomorrow. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is Etienne Nichols, your host of the podcast podcast. In today's episode, we got to sit down with two brothers who designed and developed a medical device, a balloon catheter, which was then acquired by a major strategic. These guys' names are Keith and Kevin Calms. Keith and Kevin have a unique and eh, maybe not so unique story of bringing their device through the development process. In today's episode, we dive into the details of some of the issues development engineers face during the different phases of the design controls process, specifically in regards to researching clinical evidence. Kevin is a serial entrepreneur in the contract research medical device and clinical evidence management software process. He holds a JD from Duke, founded Nested Knowledge after serving as CEO of Marblehead Medical, a neurovascular device company, which was acquired by a major strategic. Keith, his brother, is also a serial entrepreneur in the contract research, medical device, and clinical evidence management software spaces. He is now the president of Nested Knowledge. These guys are a ton of fun they have a lot of wisdom to offer early stage development engineers. They're actually a great example of how it's possible to work with your family, with your siblings. So anyway, I love these guys. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Hey guys, welcome back. I'm excited to be with you today with me, uh, Keith and Kevin. Guys, first, maybe before we just jump straight to our, our conversation about the clinical evidence, and we can talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but You guys have a unique life, I guess, in my mind. When I talk to you guys, where are you guys coming from today? And and tell the the audience a little bit about your lifestyle.
2: Yeah, I can take that one. We're both currently in Minnesota, where we grew up. But we're actually digital nomads, jetting off tomorrow in the car to Salt Lake City. And Kevin's going to join me the week after in Jackson Hole. Um, We visited 145 cities in the past 12 months. So our lifestyle is pretty much find a mountain, find a cool place in the American West, whether that be Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, Washington, Utah, Colorado. <laughs> Get an Airbnb, post up, work, hike. Bring Wi-Fi. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then ski if it's if it's the if it's the winter world. We'll be skiing, not hiking. Yeah, it's also good for business. Lets us meet partners, clients, coworkers more often than if we were if we were in one location all the time.
1: Yeah, that in real life networking is is very real and it's uh that's good. I'm glad you guys are able to do that. I'm also I'm going to live vicariously through. I think I told you that when I met you Keith last week at True Quality. Um I still haven't figured out how to 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 live that way with my three kids. Uh maybe maybe 10 years or so we'll figure it out, but um glad glad you guys are with us today. Uh today we want to be talking about uh, well, why don't you go ahead and uh, talk to us a little bit about the clinical evidence, maybe, maybe leading up to this conversation, how you got into this space, and uh, yeah, maybe some of your background as far as that goes. That
2: is a great question. I think our backgrounds pretty much inform how we got into clinical evidence management. When I was a senior in college, I started a very boutique contract research service firm that Kevin very swiftly joined and took over management of that was laser focused on stroke and aneurysm we now do it's still in existence clinical consulting regulatory consulting publication consulting really anything in the data management data analysis services industry laser focused on the neurovasculature so that was how we got our start very quickly after that, we wrote an SBIR for a Mayo Clinic device that our, our father and his trainee had actually invented. They asked us to then run the company after we got that SBIR grant. So Kevin and I got sort of thrown into the deep end immediately on developing a medical device, running a clinical study on that medical device, getting two 510ks on it, launching it in a market, and then finally exiting to uh, Strategic. strategic. So, We've been both on the, the vendor side of the clinical evidence management world and on the consumer as a as a medical device professional. Seeing it from both sides, you really realize how central clinical outcomes data are to every stage of the medical device development process, right? So starting from square one, right? Physician or unmet clinical need driven innovation. This is something that so many entrepreneurs talk about. Like our product is rooted in an unmet clinical need. Well, how do you find that unmet clinical need? You go to the clinical literature, you you analyze the data, you narrow in on it. Next, right, when you're developing specs, you're going to prioritize based on what the clinical evidence says is the greatest unmet need. When you're designing a clinical study, if you want to be able to use that data and compare it to your competitors, you're going to need to go to the literature, find the clinical evidence they collected in your study and base your protocol off of that. That's what Kevin did when he designed our our clinical study. Regulatory documents, that's a no-brainer, right? If you're, especially if you're going to Europe or or Japan, you have to include comprehensive clinical evidence, reviews and analysis of your product and competing products if you want regulatory clearance. And then finally, any sort of marketing claim, any sort of communication with healthcare providers or hospitals has to again, be rooted in this clinical evidence that's called market access or health tech assessment or health economics. It's all the same thing. It's looking at clinical evidence and convincing end users and purchasers that your device is worth the cost.
1: Yeah. So, and that I love that overview, just kind of a a high level overview, but I might even want to go a step further. So if we Let's back up to the development cycle because I know we want to focus on the clinical uh, evidence and the management of that evidence, but there's a lot of things to unpack within that, that whole phrase. So if we go back to the development cycle, maybe even to design control. So I don't know how far back we need to go. But how far do, do, does this reach back to, and what do you, what kind of uh, advice do you have for companies who are they're going to have to do that? Maybe they're, like you mentioned with Europe, it's a no-brainer. You have to provide these different things. Let's go back to the development cycle. What do you give? What advice do you give to them early on to make that easier in the long run?
0: That's a great question, and I think there's even the question there about when should I start design controls, which I've gotten that a lot from device entrepreneurs. I actually think that you should be, you should be looking at the science before you look at I. Uh, Development. And I I mean this before you sit down and start prototyping, pre design control, pre prototype. That's when you should actually be examining the clinical evidence. There are several reasons for that. So if you think you have a good idea, then it number one needs to help patients. And uh, to help patients, it needs to have some gap in, in what is currently being provided to patients it doesn't take a huge investment you don't need to get a physical facility you don't need to do a ton of work in order to just go out there and try to figure out is there a need and i think that there's there's more than just the clinical evidence that should inform that right you should be looking at other people's devices you should be looking at the landscape in the medical device world before you really f- physical infrastructure is expensive and it, and prototyping is hard right like the, the those are those are tasks that take sourcing they take weeks they take there's just a lot of inputs that go into prototyping that you don't actually need in order to validate the need, right? There's actually no way at the bench to prove that a device is needed just to prove that a device works. So I actually think I'm I'm a huge proponent of do easy things first, do cheap things first, but also like like do important big uh, uh, research uh, uh, tasks before you're going to spend a lot of money actually moving forward with the program. So I actually think clinical evidence should pre-exist really any part of the development cycle because that's decision-making, right? You're just, you should be making good decisions and good decisions should pre-exist everything in, in the development uh, uh, landscape. Design controls should come only after you've, you've basically validated your need and you've prototyped enough that you, you know that, that you should continue, right? Like you, you've prototyped enough that you know, I'm not going to kill this idea you know, right after I had it. That's sort of the, the, the sequence to me as yeah, clinical evidence and decision-making, then prototyping, then design controls.
1: So when you say clinical evidence that early on, what, what does that actually look like? I'm a I'm a product development engineer. I'm going to sit down. I'm thinking I'm going to start my user needs or, and and so forth. But in your mind, you're saying maybe even before that, what does it actually look like when you say clinical evidence? It's a great question.
2: Yeah. Uh, I I can take that one. So zooming out to 10,000 feet, right? It's okay. very easy for engineers to get very focused on the immediate task at hand. but if you're an entrepreneur, if you're an an engineer in in a small company, you have to consider why startups succeed and why startups fail. And people are frequently fixated on money on burn, obviously, that's critically important. But the biggest reason, and I was just talking to a very close friend of mine about this in the medical device industry is lack of product market fit. That's why devices fail, is that they're not addressing an unmet need in the marketplace. If you're a big corp, you can spend a bunch of money and that launch fails and you have your whole suite of products to to float you to the next successful or not unsuccessful product. If you're a startup, you live and die on product market fit. So before you start prototyping, as Kevin said, you need to find an unmet clinical need in the clinical literature. So you ask about, okay, clinical evidence, you say clinical evidence, what are you talking about? The first place to start is the clinical literature. Now you might be able to find other sources as well. Those are usually harder to find in terms of proprietary data sets or Medicare databases. You're getting into the weeds then, but anyone can go to PubMed, search in their space, find articles that report different clinical outcomes between device type A and device type B. And if you're like us and you're going for, you know, five, 10 Ks with predicates, then you know there will be similar devices out there compared to the people that will become your competitors. Find those and make sure that you're actually addressing an unmet patient need before you even start prototyping. Because even if you build the best device in that class, if that class does not benefit patients, you're going to have a really hard time convincing physicians to use it, convincing hospitals to. Purchase it and if if need be, if you don't have a code, convincing payers to reimburse for it. So before anything physical happens, get on PubMed, search for the predicates for your device, analyze whether or not they're actually fulfilling an unmet patient
1: need. Go ahead, Kevin.
0: Yeah. If you're intimidated by what Keith just said, like if you're like, what what does he mean literature? What does he mean PubMed? Any of those things, I think it pairs really well with talk to doctors. Like before you do expensive physical things, you should also be talking to doctors about what their needs are because they know much better than those of us who are at that, you know, we are all a little bit removed from patient care. They are the only people who actually are on the front lines seeing what patients' needs are. And they also tend to be more research capable than, honestly, a lot of people in the engineering world. So, So I think that you can actually accomplish a lot of this by okay, let me actually go into a hospital. And if it's an interventional procedure, watch the procedure. If it's not, talk to the doctor about how they uh, uh, diagnose, how they they make treatment decisions. And also integrate into that, okay, what evidence do you use? And I don't know many physicians who are like, oh, evidence, that's not part of my decision-making process. So they can often be a good guide on that front. So talking to doctors can be a starting point if you're not an expert there, and they can be your guide into the literature, into the clinical evidence that actually underlies their own decisions.
1: Okay so usually my job is to get a little bit more pinpoint things but I actually want to see if I can broaden what you just said when you said physicians and doctors so I was at a conference earlier this week talking to a few different uh, types of people and they they're seeing more of a broad clinician and I'm curious what your what your perception is is it doctors and physicians or even the nurses are are becoming more and more important you're totally right. Thanks for calling me out. I, I
0: said, what I really mean is people who are on the front lines of patient care. Yeah. And to me, it's not about, there's no credential that really means that you know or don't know. There's no specific, you know, I think that everything from nurses, nurse practitioners, PAs, DOs, MDs, anyone who is on the front lines taking care of patients and has to make decisions for or with patients. That's the key because like life is in their hands when they make those decisions. They're not going to base them on nothing And so you can actually use them as a resource in your process for figuring out what could be improved there. And if you don't do that, then you're missing out on the context that your device will eventually exist in, right? If you don't actually understand the clinical practice and you build a device for it, and then you come in and you're like doing human factors tests and you're like, why are they not using it the way I intended? It's like, well, maybe you should have checked from the start how they... Already practice, so uh, yeah. Thanks for the call out.
1: <laughs> no, I, I didn't mean to call you out. I just think it's interesting. And so I was at a conference where they were talking about nurses are more important than ever before in the decision making process. And I told them like, my wife's a nurse. I'm going to go home and she, she's going to say, I told you so. And so <laughs> I just I just think that's great, and it, it's good because. It's about time we address that, those unmet needs. The stat I heard recently was 29% of nurses are, are thinking about leaving the industry and we can't really afford that right now. So that's, that's, that's incredible. So anyway, we can move away from that for a moment. So we talked a little bit about how to get that literature. You know, and, and maybe, maybe we're not quite ready. I'm, I have another question about that. As you're going through PubMed and looking at that literature, maybe when do you decide enough is enough? And then what do you do with that? How do you metabolize that into your design controls?
0: That's a great question. And the when am I done question happens multiple times as you're reviewing the literature. I I tend to break down finding scientific evidence into simple steps. First step, search. So you go out and find a bunch of articles. You don't know yet whether they're relevant. You've just, you know, you put in the best search terms that you can, uh, you know, with your first try, put out there, and then you have to comb through then what comes back. So step two is usually filtering. We, We generally call that screening in my world. But yeah, you, you need a step where you search and then you need a step where you filter because not everything that comes back is going to be the evidence that you want. And that is really the key step where you have to, you have to ask yourself, when am I done? Because search is an infinite problem, right? There could be literature anywhere. It's getting better, right? That like Indexes are getting a lot better at finding non-predatory journals that you should be pulling information from. But you do need to keep going until, until you are no longer pulling in any relevant articles. And the way that I usually do that is I run multiple searches. And then as I run, you know, like the fifth search, if I find no new information that wasn't in my first through fourth, if I find only things that are in my first through fourth search and no new information on top of them, that's when I start thinking that I'm done. So search and filter. And when you're searching, you know you're done. When you're not finding any new evidence in your filter, there's no gold in the pan anymore. It's all rocks. Then... Really, you then have to examine it and say, okay, what is my actual evidence of interest? What are, the, what are the devices I care about? And what are the outcomes that I actually want to track? Then, really, all you need to do is go into the articles that you've screened down to, find the interventions, find the outcomes of interest, and pull those out. And that's a much easier question in terms of like, when am I done? You're done when you have the evidence that you sought regarding device performance. Now, it doesn't always go as well as you'd hope there. Very often, people go into the clinical literature, they come back and they're like, oh, the evidence that I was looking for wasn't there. And that is definitely discouraging in some sense, but I I always find that there's a silver lining there where if there's not a ton of clinical evidence around a certain question, that could also mean, that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, there's not a need there. That may actually mean that there's a greater need for development there because there aren't that many interventions that are being tested in the entire disease state. So so I think on that end, you know when you're done, when you've found outcomes that are relevant to your intervention, or when you failed to find them. And you then know that it might be an area that needs just development in general, where you need your first study to actually start generating evidence of whether or not you know a certain device or device classes, applications.
1: Okay, so that, that makes sense. If we fast forward, so we now we're into the design controls process, I'm gonna just kind of do, do this pretty rapid fire, but we've gotten to that point, we have the evidence, we are, we're confident, we want to move forward with the solution, um, and then we get into our clinical validation, our clinical trials, and so forth. What are the pitfalls that you see people getting into around that? Ooh, let's do some storytelling. Okay, yeah, so,
0: that's great. So, uh, actually, let me do a story about design controls. We started out not, as Keith said, like our initial experience was helping with read, and we cared a lot about you know audit uh, auditability. We wanted to be good scientists. We wanted to be transparent and replicable. But when we got into the device world, there's a there's a big step. When I say like design controls are expensive and take a lot of effort, the big reason there is that there actually has to be an audit record all the way back to effectively your concept when you're turning around, you know, a year or two or five later. When you're like, I'm going to put this on the market, you need a history that goes all the way back. And as a as an entrepreneur, we just didn't know at the front that that design history file needed to be structured in a way that you know, everyone in the industry would already be able to find exactly what they needed, that had the right tests matched to the right risks, that had all the risk calculations done the way that other people had done their risk calculations. We really, I think we underbuilt our first time around. And we ended up having to take that humble step back and start our design process over. We actually had to build a second device because the first device's design history was inadequate. And that was a huge learning for us. That was a very expensive learning for us. So please, uh, everyone out there, learn from us. When I say, start your design controls at concept. Use someone who's done it before, and and honestly, someone who's probably done it as peerless an institution as possible, because you want that to be built out way in advance of when you're gonna be going to market. Your professionalism needs to pick up. We like to think about garage engineering in our industry, right? But you actually have to jump from garage engineering to design control based engineering. <laughs> Much earlier than people think, so that's a huge learning for us. The second part of the story, other big pitfalls are I uh, timing. So we were very aggressive and even optimistic, I'd say, on like timelines to regulatory clearance timelines to launch, and we didn't quite understand the intricacies of how sourcing affects, you know, like your your DV and V testing. Right, it's like oh, we just realized that we're 12 weeks behind because we planned DV for when we wouldn't actually have the materials to actually get there. So having like good timeline management often comes down to just giving yourself enough play, right? Like not trying to plan overly optimistic, overly interdependent timelines on every aspect of the development process really takes a lot of the pressure off of your DV and V testing, your your regulatory write-up. The more you try to layer it, it's like, well, we're going to get our DV and V back on, you know, like, you know, June eighteenth, and we're going to have five ten k done on June twentieth, and then we'll submit it, and then we'll we'll plan exactly ninety days for the response from the FDA. And hey, look, we're going to be out on the market by by end of Q three. It's like, uh, okay, that's that that's overly optimistic. Much in the same way that you know, trying to take a garage engineered product forward past you know design freeze without without adequate design history is is just overly optimistic. So I think. That's where good planning and calling on people with with good experience is absolutely necessary in, in the process. Keith, other stories from our from our device woes to add there.
2: I guess th- this is a little bit off topic, but I think it's extremely relevant as well. Kevin mentioned talking to physicians. Talking to physicians, we, we characterize that as customer discovery. That, that's what we call it. That's what the industry calls it. I think that that is too narrow a definition of customer discovery for me, because if you're a startup, and you're not trying to build a company that you're going to take public, but you're trying to be a serial entrepreneur, really your end customer is the strategic, right? Your physician, you're going to make a lot more money from your strategic acquirer than you will from the physician. So um, I get these questions all the time from entrepreneurs. Probably the number one question I get is how do I know someone's not going to steal my idea? And uh, (laughs) my dad likes to say ideas are cheap, execution's expensive. Talk to strategics early and often. We made that mistake and of not talking to the strategics early enough, and actually built the wrong device for our eventual customer, which was the strategic that w- that had a lot to do with like Kevin was saying the design controls, but also the final design of that device. We had talked only to physicians, rather than also talking to strategics. I think I think entrepreneurs are way too cagey about their ideas. Really, like there are a lot of ideas out there. I promise yours is not as original as you think it is. It's your execution and your passion that is going to make it happen, and maybe your IP. So. Talk to those people early and often, consider your st- strategic, equally your customer uh, uh, as, as you would a uh, clinician, not just physician, clinician, uh, uh, nurse or physician as well. So a little bit off talk, but I, I also think it's relevant to uh, the conversation.
1: Well, after all my participation awards, rewards, you kind of broke my heart a little bit that I'm not as unique as I thought I was. That's okay. <laughs> um, but <laughs> That's okay. Uh, I'll get over it. But one of the things that y- you brought up something that, that made me curious, so... Um, can you give it a little more detail about what you did wrong? So was it like you know you planned for machining when maybe the strategic is going to use injection molding and you you weren't geared up for that kind of tooling? Or I don't know what the what your specific pro- product was, but just you know it's a little bit more detail. I'm curious. So uh, we
0: actually uh, the two big errors were in the actual design. We went from our user needs and and actually a, a key part of anyone's development process. I think the most important document in your development process is where you line up your user needs next to your product specifications, and then you do a prioritization exercise, which we did with the strategic once we were doing round two, um, building device number two. Uh, Going through and actually lining up this user need is driving this product specification. And this is the product specification that we think is the most important to hit. For us, we came in thinking that we wanted to build a super robust catheter for, for treatment of stroke when actually what we needed to do was build a hypernavigable, very slender catheter for for stroke. And so we prioritized basically stability uh, of the device far higher in the list than we needed to. And the strategic came in and when we did the reprioritization exercise, it was like actually getting to the lesion is like the most important thing here. And being able to, uh, to do that through an eight French sheath to avoid groin uh, complications is also like maybe number two. So we had those like, you know, way down in our product spec prioritization list. And because it's because we'd never talked to them before, right? We designed an entire device before we did the prioritization exercise we should have done from the start, which is let's figure out that actually navigability and, and device sizing is the most important spec. And then our actual, you know, our, our design changes were a little painful, right? You have to go back to the drawing board and, you know, throw out something that's effectively your baby. But the other piece of it was, I think we planned basically a startup's DV and And I think that's all good. You know, I'm I'm all for being as efficient as possible, like try to do as many tests on each device as you can, Uh, you know, try to be clever about about not using materials you don't have to, not using time you don't have to. But if you want something to be an acquirable device, and honestly, if you want something to be uh, tested to like the current standards in terms of avoiding catastrophic failure modes, I think that having robust pre dv is actually the biggest part that I'd say there. So For design validation and verification you really should be building out as robustly as possible but you should also do robust pre-dv as in run each of your test methods against some devices so that you have evidence going into it that helps support you know we're actually we're we're looking at burst and we think that burst testing is going to uh is going to be okay or you figure out along that pathway you know that that your burst testing is actually you know found a weak point in your device then you can go back and, and and alter it we actually didn't know the term pre-D V when we started out. Yeah. So so I think that including that robust pre-D V to give that confidence going into the D V and V testing, and then also to help you identify weak points in in your own design process is a huge part of it that's overlooked by overconfident startups, right? That say, Oh, well, testing's a formality, right? Testing is just to show that I'm as genius as I thought I was. Uh, that, that, I think that's that's a really important
1: humble moment. And I want to add one thing there. If and I'll let you go in a second here, Keith. But so when you're in your pre-DV, you kind of mentioned the product, and I think you implicitly mentioned this. But you're testing the product to make sure that you're not, you know, going to blow it out. Maybe can go back to the drawing board and redesign, shore up some things. But you're also testing the test. You want to make sure that you're exactly. testing the right exactly. things. And so, yeah, pre, I, I I Agree with you. You know, you gotta, you gotta make sure that both of those things are are, are. What were you gonna say, Keith? Go ahead. All, all
2: I was gonna say is entrepreneurs are a necessarily over-optimistic bunch. Uh,
1: I think, uh, <laughs>
2: in order to make the plunge, you kind of have to have that personality type. But uh, you can de-risk your uh, optimism <laughs> with a pre a pre DV test. Also, exactly like you said, testing the test, which people don't seem to think about. Right? We kind of randomly pick tests in a way, right? And just because we looked at how other people were testing it, what we thought was reasonable.
0: What is the ISO say? What means, yeah.
2: <laughs> and we never tested our tests on the first one. So 100% agree, equally important to testing your device is testing how you're going to test your device. And even like data collection mechanism, How are you? how are you collecting that data so you can analyze it, right? How are you collecting that data so you can share it? This stuff is really boring, right? Like no one's thinking about like, well, how are we going to how are we going to share this data with our collaborators? But it's also important.
1: Yeah. So and so, let's go ahead and go to there because our we kind of talked about, and uh, probably by the time this is released, we'll have a title about clinical evidence uh, and clinical evidence management. When you got to that point, you started running those those validation you know studies and things. How were you managing that evidence in a way that was usable and effective? That's a great question, and I think that
0: it's all about the chain of like which evidence is leading to which decisions. So for us, we, the bad way, the first time was we, we just looked at the 510ks of predicate devices and we saw the test that they did we were like, oh, that, that looks like a good test. Or we went to ISOs and like looked in the appendices to see which tests they recommended for a certain device class. I think that gets you like the baseline. To me, that's like you're, you're deriving evidence from authority effectively, right? You're basically saying that, hey, I trust the device developer who came before me. He found all the right tests for this device type. Where I actually think that should be driven from is the risks. You should be testing your device with respect to the risks, the risks of patient harm. And I know this is part of the process, right? You do a a whole matrix of, you know, like the likelihood of a certain risk and how problematic it may be. But where do those risks even come from? Like, how are you populating your risk, your list of risks? And I think for a lot of people, it is sort of like that go to authority, like it's a catheter. So the sorts of risks we're looking at are, you know, like vessel wall damage. But I think that a, a much more robust strategy is to go to. Both, uh, and I know a lot of people do go to the MOD database, which has some level of, uh, I, I think, very diverse reporting. I think that's really good, but it doesn't have as structured of data-driven reporting. It's much more like qualitative and descriptive. It's good to read through those things, but if you actually want data on like what, what is the risk, how common is it, and what are the like what patient outcomes does it lead to. That's actually where, to me, your clinical evidence should slot in in the second position, right? So first use of clinical evidence is to determine if there's a need. The second use is to determine the risks. And so when you're actually putting together your trace matrix and you're going to have your list of risks that you're going to test against and and line up like risk to your matrix should show the risk that you're addressing, how common it is, how it affects patients, and then it should have the test attached at the end there, right? So you should drive through to your test methods from the risks that you find. That's that's effectively to me that the process should be going through.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. That's cool. So once all that's done, well, I mean, you know, maybe I should ask when you guys got to that point when you were, you know, running those tests. Did you have any other failures uh, that that really stand out in your mind? I I love the success stories, but I actually think I like the failure stories more sometimes because we don't always talk about those.
0: There's uh, some interesting stuff there, and not to get too far into things like uh, uh, the fundamental nature of chaos. But we definitely found that aging tests were, were something that that throw a, uh, throw chaos into your process, right? You're effectively trying to model entropy on your own device using usually radiation, right? You're, you're radiating your devices in order to, to simulate entropy. That's an infinite exposure, right? So that's an exposure to any sort of problem. And so for us, the other thing about aging tests is that they actually, they're more impactful when they fail than other tests because you waited three months or eight months or whatever it was to get that test device, right? And so if anything goes wrong, you're gonna have to wait a a similar amount of time to to redo. So I think that aging is something that entrepreneurs also don't think about enough. And we definitely had failures around, you know, device performs great when it's new, but once you've irradiated it a ton and and exposed it to as much entropy as you can, it doesn't do as well on key tests. And that means that you have to actually build in a lot more. Like when you're doing your pre-DV, If you're approaching failure on anything, you should expect that, you know, chaos could throw you into it when you actually are going to be doing, you know, aged unit tests as well.
1: Yeah. Okay. You kind of bring up a good point because, uh, you know, if you're using rubber or whatever polymer you're using, I I suppose even sterilization could increase that cross-linking, make things stiffer than you might... Um, so if you're using gamma and, and then the, the street strategic is going to move towards e, D, ETO, I, I'm a little, I'm outside my. You're yeah. Me, yeah. You're giving me PTSD here. You, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, okay. that No, that's really good. That's cool. Um, I love hearing these stories about people who went through it and you succeeded, you know, and now you're, you're on the other side, you know, maybe scathed a little, but um, what else? Uh, maybe in specific to your clinical evidence management, Um, or really any of those things, what other advice would you give to early stage startups who are working through their their design controls and and so forth? Anything come to mind? You know, one thing, one question that I, I get a lot is establishing those user needs. And I love that you pointed out that the strategic actually sat down with you and said, let's prioritize these. It made me think of the, I think the diagram, is it jobs to be done diagram where you have the impact over the effort? I I don't remember the exact terms right now. You know, and and you want to be in the top right. Those are the ones that you have to do those. Um, How hard will it take and, and what's the impact that it's going to do? It sounds like they probably had that in mind when they sat down and looked at those user needs. What are we actually trying to accomplish here for our indication? So. Did you have any issues or struggles as you were formulating those user needs? And you know, Keith it looked like you were about to say something, feel free to sidestep that question if you like. No, I, th- I think we should
2: move to- towards the
1: question you just asked. I was gonna say, having a- the correct flow
2: where you're analyzing, again, the unmet clinical need, which will then inform the unmet user need, right? So the question is, oh, well, X type of device outperforms Y type of device. Why don't you use X? That is something you discovered in the clinical literature, and then you discern the unmet user need through customer discovery, right? Oh, uh, yeah, I've seen that clinical need. I know, but it it interrupts my workflow, or I, I find current devices to be burdensome to use, or, oh, it doesn't work with my favorite adjunctive device. You'll get the unmet user needs by bringing the unmet clinical need to the clinician who uses that. You then translate the unmet user need into specs. And if you've gotten enough customer discovery data from your eventual end users, you should be able to do a prioritization exercise of, okay, well, these are the unmet user needs that are informed by the unmet clinical needs. Let's map them out. The last thing I'll add though, is especially in physical uh, <laughs> physical industries, it's always trade-offs, right? So you're never, you're never solving a problem you are weighting problems against each other. And if you're able to bring concrete data, like for our device, we interviewed like 80 some physicians and we actually asked them to rank how like what they saw yeah. in clinical needs. And we asked we 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 analyzed the data, and we said, okay, these are the top specs we need to focus on that will meet the unmet user need. And these we can kind of let fall by the wayside if 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 need be due to trade-off. So um that's just the the sort of flow on my clinical need informs on my user need informs spec development.
1: Yeah, that's a great I, point. Go ahead, Kevin.
0: Yeah, I also like your your graph that we're doing in our heads where it's impact and effort on the X and Y axes. The axis that I'll add for, for a device is a time axis. You should have like a Z axis going back into it. And I'm not talking about... Effort covers like the amount of time input. I'm talking about the amount of time lag if you don't start it right now. So uh, figuring out what you need to do early so that you don't need it later and don't have it, right? That's that's actually the the things that are in the top right and you know, also very, very far along the axis in terms of lag between when you need to do it and when it becomes due, that is huge. And that's part of that planning process where if you are following, I think if you're following good design controls and you have like, like a process where you're going to do pre-DV and then DV through it, you naturally will plan better around it but but there's still that open uncertainty of what to prioritize and i think when you're saying what to prioritize impact over effort over time <laughs>
1: <sighs> that makes sense that's really cool I'm trying to think one other question that i had and it kind of goes back to the flow that keith was talking about uh, you know determining that unmet user need and then fleshing out your user needs i like how you mentioned life's kind of a series of trade-offs you're not going to solve every problem you solve the problem that makes the most sense for your your you know, the population. And then uh, you have to validate that user need. So you're kind of coming full circle and uh, building out that evidence that you've done what you said you're going to do. Um, So I don't know if you have anything to add on that, but I thought that was a a good flow to just kind of have visually.
0: Nothing there, but uh, uh, there is sort of the next step and the next complaint that I have. Okay, And in this one, it's actually not a complaint about uh, overly optimistic startup entrepreneurs. It's actually a complaint about researchers, which is kind of funny. So uh, I, let's switch over and stop criticizing ourselves and start yeah. criticizing quickly. Uh, <laughs> the next step, right? So after you, we've already we've already talked through user needs, product specifications, just the early design controls, pre DV DV testing. Next, like let's say that you need to do a clinical test on your device in order for it to get into the whether. I mean, that could be an IDE or it could be post market. You are planning a clinical study. You will find, I and I, I pretty much guarantee this across disciplines, which is which is hard to do, but I think it's that in it's that deep of a problem. You're going to look for some sort of certainty that if you have the effects, if your device has the effect that you think it will, that you'll have a positive trial. And that is that is not a true assumption in most cases, because there's incomplete information information out there. And the challenges there that, that researchers I think have set us up for is that power analysis has to be based on very careful matching of the actual data elements that you're going to be you know, gathering as your measures of treatment effect. And let, let me break that down. I hate to use jargon without explaining it. By data element, I simply mean a variable that has uh, context. So it has an intervention that was applied on a certain timescale with a certain follow-up and it has a certain statistic type. So it's like a mean or a median or you know a number of patients. So when you are establishing what you want your endpoints in your clinical trial to be, you cannot guarantee that the researchers in the literature have actually used the same data elements that you want to use. And so your power analysis could be complicated by having to basically say, well, they used the endpoint of, you know, like shrinking hematoma at, at 90 days where it gets less than 10 millimeters. We weren't going to use that exact endpoint. How can we, you know, like change their endpoint enough and, and try to calculate based on top of it? That is a huge problem that you need to identify. Again, this is one of those where identify early. I... Uh, Before you even plan your your clinical trial, you need to adjust for the fact that researchers will not necessarily set you up with perfect endpoints in perfect trials that were previously run uh, with the exact population size that you're going to need in order to actually show the effect that you want. So go to the literature early, identify the data elements that you'll want to gather as your safety and efficacy endpoints, and see if they're actually reported the way that you think that they should be. If not, you actually need to hop on that immediately because you need to do an exercise in harmonizing the data elements in the literature before you're going to go and assert to the FDA that you perform well with respect to that data element, right? If you're going to bring an endpoint to the FDA, it better be, you know, attested in the the previous literature and it better be comparable or number one, you're not going to be able to predict whether, you know, your power analysis is actually telling you that your treatment effect will be shown or you know that the FDA is going to actually be okay with the way that you're reporting your data compared to other people. So a complaint, heterogeneous data elements, like not well reported and not necessarily well used in, in previous trials, that you as, an entrepreneur, as a device entrepreneur, as, as a you know, clinical affairs lead, need to identify early. And really, really your, it is your responsibility to harmonize the data in a way that you can use it to inform your trial design and then turn around and use that information to inform regulatory bodies or whoever you're sending that data to.
1: So, when you talk about those researchers, did, uh, maybe it'd be interesting to hear your story. Did you go to a CRO, or how did you um, how did you go through that? They they sort of what involvement did you have in setting those tests up?
0: So, we used a CRO for actually running the trial, and I think they did a tremendous job. And I, I actually think the CRO industry I'm really impressed with what people have done in terms of putting together like HIPAA compliant databases that. Can be like custom built to your needs, and then and then you know uh, decommissioned when they're done. I'm very impressed with that. I, I will say that I think that there are there are design issues, and I actually found that you know in my C, in my in my CRO experience, the piece that I don't get enough help with is actually designing my trial. Um, I actually did a ton of the actual like protocol writing for my own trial, um, and I, I don't I didn't feel particularly qualified to it, but I also didn't feel like the support was there for that whole process of figuring out what again comparable interventions work. What, how did they measure themselves? What were the primary safety and efficacy outcomes of those comparable studies? What, were, what was the effect size that they saw? What, were, what, what population were they using? So all those like design, like clinical design inputs, not, not device design inputs, but things that should go into your study design. We had to do that a lot ourselves. Um, I, I know that Greenlight has uh, I've been uh, offering some, some other eye, eye services there. And I, I think that uh, from, from my research on this, if I were to do it again, I would, I would definitely do a design where I'm working with like smart trials or similar to actually establish that design in advance of building my database. But that wasn't exactly the experience that I had.
1: So, <laughs> yeah. And so, <laughs> so I'm
0: curious. Yeah, design how, is an important part of that.
1: How did you reach maybe a satisfactory outcome? Did you, you said you did a lot of it yourself. Did you, did you work with a doctor or someone else and building that out? Or you know, who, who do you need on your team, I guess, is, is my question.
0: I think physicians are, are definitely a part of that in defining like, well, what is like when you're saying, I want to measure safety, it's like, okay, what are the safety outcomes that you actually need to measure? It's like, is it major neurological events? Is it death? Um, it, it might not be right. That might not be the proper outcome for your trial. So going to the doctors to figure out what the, those risks are, you can also drive them from that literature review that you did earlier in the process, right? When you were doing user needs, isn't that still hanging around? Don't you have that? Can't you just uh, <laughs> right. can't you look at that and see if those are safety outcomes? So if you've done your if you've done your homework uh, with the physicians in step one, user need, then I think you already have a lot of good information. Uh, the other piece is, of course, uh, and I think that biostatisticians are literally like worth, I'm not sure what gold is these days, but <laughs> probably more than their weight in gold in, in planning these trials or at the very least statistical tools. So again, uh, if there's, a, if there's a, a group that you can work with that has statistical tools or that has good biostatisticians, that's going to help you, get, you figure out, you know, we have our safety outcomes. Okay, now what's the actual population we need to treat in order to show that we're not actually leading to this risk or that risk?
1: Yeah, great. Now, I thought this was really informative. I appreciate you guys coming on. Anything else you want to add kind of as we sign off here and any other thoughts you want to impart?
0: Yeah, I would basically ask any any device entrepreneur or anyone who's working uh, in the field of translating user needs to devices. If you are actually having that problem of you know I'm not sure uh, what the you know patient needs, what the physician needs, I'm not sure what <laughs> I'm not sure what the risk should be in my in my design trace matrix. I'm not sure what the endpoint should be in my clinical trial. If you have any of those questions, I would say we're actually good people to talk to about that. You can find our information on our on our site. So I, I go to uh, nested-knowledge.com, and we not only have Keith and me as people who can help with that, we have been spending the past three years building a software to help with those exact issues. So you can even jump in and literally like, go to the site, sign up, and you will, all, you will be jumping in. You'll be led right through PubMed the way that you, uh, uh, you would be by a physician or a medical librarian. Uh, you'll be able to filter down to the studies that you're interested in, find those risks. Uh, and then also have a great support team if you end up having questions along the way. So, uh, really, just an invitation for those who are following in our footsteps: use our experience and also use our software. Help yourself out.
1: Yeah. Well, cool. I'll, I'll. We'll put links in the show notes so that people can find out how to, you know, get a hold of you guys and so forth. And uh, so, where are you guys off to next in your in your um, digital nomad journey? <laughs>
2: Uh, we are, I'm, I'm leaving tomorrow for, for Salt Lake, uh, big fan of Salt Lake, beautiful mountains. You can hike out your back door if you're in downtown, basically it's crazy. Then we're doing Jackson Hole, which, you know, Tetons and I think Yellowstone <laughs> is pretty inaccessible right now, but the Tetons are still gorgeous, uh, Western Wyoming, and then hoping to do Montana as well. But just in general, like in terms of, of ex- the accessibility of natural beauty, there's really nothing that beats the american west like you can go from spectacular canyons to mountain forests to you know gorges to like world-beating peaks it's you know it's, i, I I'm, I'm shocked that more people haven't done it when i when i talked about it haven't seen it but it's super accessible
1: and uh
2: yeah, it's free in national forest. So why, why wouldn't you? Yeah, <laughs> well, I,
1: I guess I'll uh, add a few more things to my bucket list. You know, maybe my kids' bucket list, so that I can, you know, make an excuse there too. So no, that's good. <laughs> Great talking to you guys. I really appreciate it. Um, for those of you who've been listening, you've been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. If you have uh, any questions, feel free to reach out at podcast at greenlight.guru or uh, reach out to Keith or Kevin. Look at the show notes and see how you can uh, get a hold of them. Thank you so much, and we will see you all next time. Improving the quality of life. I know we say it a lot here at Greenlight Guru, and I'll bet it's something you probably said at your company too. We help babies breathe at night. We give you another day to be a dad. We give you back your eyesight. Those are some of the things the medical device industry and our customers are able to say because that's what they're doing. They're improving the quality of life for these individuals. Greenlight Guru is the only quality management software designed exclusively for the medical device industry. We built our software around standards like ISO 13485 and risk-based principles to help you bring safer devices to market three times faster. We're building the tools that will make it easier for you to build yours. If you're ready to find out how to improve the quality of life, contact Greenlight.guru today.